0: This is not your ordinary deck of playing cards. These cards contain 52 unsolved cases, and with every hand that's played, the stakes are unusually high. They've been dealt to inmates across the nation, and investigators are hoping their tips will stack the odds in favor of the house. Now it's your turn. These victims have been dealt an unfair hand, and it's up to you to deal justice somebody somewhere has information that could be investigators ace in the hole welcome to season two episode six of dealing justice we thought we would shuffle the deck on this one and tell you guys about a solved case in the deck and give you an example of how the cold case playing cards have helped solve cases for over 15 years now so welcome, I'm Jennifer Dubisak. And I'm Laurie Jennings. It's awesome to see how Tommy Ray's innovative approach to crime solving has spread and continues to be effective to this day. It's also important to know that there is currently no formal tracking system implemented to keep up with how many cases have been solved based on tips from the cold case playing cards. We get our information straight from the cards and police departments who close the cases. It's great to see justice serve for these
1: families, and we plan to double down and bring you more of these solved cases in the future, just to shake things up. And as always, we would love to see the day when there are more solved cases on the cold case playing cards than cold cases. But until that day comes, we will continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice. It's time for us to solve these cases one card at a time.
0: This is episode six, the Ingrid Lugo case, six of spades, Florida deck. This episode of Dealing Justice brings us to Sarasota, Florida, where the picturesque landscape became a watery grave for this Venezuelan beauty. See how justice was dealt for Ingrid Lugo. Ingrid Lugo was 34 years old. Her cold case card shows us a beautiful woman With brown skin, perfectly painted lips, short brown hair, a bright sleeveless shirt, and a beaming smile, she looks radiant. Ingrid moved to the United States from Venezuela. She was extremely close with her brother, Rafael Lugo. In fact, she lived with him and his wife and children in Sarasota, Florida, where she soaked up life as much as she did the sunshine, and she lived in a sun lovers paradise. If you're not familiar with Sarasota, it's a real shame. Sarasota is a city south of Tampa on Florida's Gulf Coast. It was once the winter home of the Ringling brothers, and remnants of the Ringling family are still prevalent in the area. There are several keys in the city limits, including Siesta Key, which is known as one of the nation's most beautiful beaches. There's always a warm tropical breeze and an amazing sunset to enjoy. This place screams anything. But crime. But that's exactly what happened in December of 2004. Ingrid was in the United States on a work visa and was employed at the Burlington Coat Factory, where she was known as a hard worker and extremely reliable. She also helped her brother Raphael deliver newspapers overnight for the Sarasota Herald Tribune. Ingrid also had a boyfriend, and they had recently gotten engaged. Her fiance, 35 year old Brian Curry, was by all accounts a piece of, we'll we'll say, work. Detective Bill Waldron tells us more.
2: My name is William J. Waldron. I worked for approximately 20 years in law enforcement, United States Army, Military Police, City of Rome, Georgia, Police Department. I was a domestic violence coordinator for the state attorney's office in St. Petersburg, Florida. And then I finished out my career at the Manatee County Sheriff's Office as a homicide and violent crimes detective. When this investigation started, I was the on-call detective working nights in December of 2004. Brian Curry had 24 prior felony arrests, everything from drug possession to stolen vehicles, forgery and bad checks and also had a history of drug abuse. Raphael Lugo really didn't get a good feeling about Brian and uh, had talked to his sister about him several times, allegedly during the relationship between Brian Curry and Ingrid Lugo. He had a couple of violent outbursts, had stolen a few things that belonged to Ingrid was always borrowing money from her and not repaying it, had admitted to her that he had slipped up and was smoking crack cocaine and using other narcotics.
0: In November of 2004, Ingrid caught Brian with crack cocaine. Brian had had his struggles, but Ingrid believed that was all in the past. After discovering the drugs, Ingrid broke off the engagement.
2: Even though she knew about Brian's past drug issues, that he had a child and a previous relationship, all these different things, she was in love with him and was willing to give him a chance. But after being taken advantage of too many times and with the assistance of her brother, she was able to get out of a toxic relationship. But that was the type of person she was, very caring and giving.
0: December 12, 2004. So while most of the country is bundling up and drinking hot cocoa and enjoying the frigid holiday season, Ingrid was in Sarasota, Florida. And on this day, it was perfectly sunny and in the 70s. Ingrid's day started typical, including going to work. And although Ingrid and Brian had broken up, Brian came to visit her at the Burlington Coat Factory. Detective Waldron explains to us why Ingrid was willing to meet with her ex-fiance.
2: Brian Curry owed Ingrid Lugo approximately $500, and I don't remember the exact circumstances of why he owed the money or or what he had borrowed it for, but Brian was going to meet her at her place of employment, which was the Burlington Coat Factory inside Sarasota County off Cattleman Road and Bee Ridge near I. 75. And she felt safe enough to meet him there because her co workers, uh, she'd be living with her co workers, and uh, thought that it would just take a few minutes and that she would get the money back and that would be the end of it.
0: Ingrid didn't keep her meeting with Brian a secret. She told Raphael about her plans to meet with her ex fiance, and it wasn't to reconcile.
2: Here's Bill Ingrid Lugo walked out with her co workers. A little bit before 10 o'clock p.m. on December 12th, 2004, Brian Curry was near her vehicle, which was a golden color Chevy Malibu. Ingrid called her brother to let her brother know that Brian was there and she was going to meet with him. She informed her brother after talking to Brian that she agreed to drive him to his place of employment so he could retrieve the $500 cash that he owed her so he could pay her back. Her co-workers saw her leave with Brian in the passenger seat of the car and Ingrid was driving. They began driving north on Cattleman Road, which we later learned the um, place where Brian Curry had worked as a parking lot sweeper up to two days prior was several miles in the opposite direction. So based on the witnesses, they were driving in the opposite, opposite direction from where Brian Curry had, uh, had been working.
0: As it turns out, Ingrid's coworker was the last person to see her alive. They reported seeing Ingrid pull out of the parking lot with Brian in her gold Chevy Malibu driving north on Cattleman Road and Brian in the front passenger seat.
1: December 13th, early morning hours, Ingrid's brother Rafael Lugo was getting worried. His sister Ingrid never came home, and more concerning was that she was a no-show for their nightly paper route, and she wasn't answering her cell phone. This was very unusual, but Rafael knew about her plans to meet with Brian, and this was the first person he reached out to.
2: Ingrid Lugo and her brother Rafael made some extra money on the side delivering newspapers for the Sarasota Herald-Tribune. And they would normally meet around twelve fifteen, twelve thirty thirty in the morning, pick up the newspapers at a distribution point, and then they would begin their routes delivering newspapers to residential areas. So she failed to show up at the distribution point. Raphael kept trying to call Ingrid's cell phone, but it immediately went to voicemail indicating that the phone was turned off or not functioning he continued to try to make contact with her made a couple of phone calls to Brian Curry to his cell phone during this time and finally around four twenty in the morning on December thirteenth, two 2004 Brian returned Raphael's phone call and Raphael told us that he had asked Brian where Ingrid was and Brian admitted to Raphael that he didn't have the money to pay Ingrid and that she got upset with him. And he claims that Ingrid dropped him off on the side of the road somewhere and that he walked home.
1: Rafael Lugo was in a full panic and knew his sister was in danger. He immediately called the Sarasota Police Department and reported her missing. Meanwhile, Detective Waldron is reporting to work and learns that a body had been discovered in Manatee County.
2: I came in for work around 4.30 in the afternoon. I learned at that time that uh, the body of a uh, female had been found in a retention pond at a construction site and that a homicide investigation had begun. There was an area under construction. Part of it was like an industrial office park. Nearby was uh, a hotel and a shopping plaza. Construction workers had arrived at work around six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning and began setting up for the day. They had observed uh, what appeared to be a body floating in the retention pond. And so they had called 911. Patrol deputies initially responded, confirmed, that there was a body in the retention pond. And then the uh, crime scene technicians and detectives responded to begin the investigation, along with, I believe it was Dr. Russell Vega, the chief medical examiner from the medical examiner's office also responded.
0: Detective Waldron was also aware of the frantic call from Ingrid's brother about his missing sister to the Sarasota Police Department and he was already putting the pieces together.
2: Ingrid Lugo's brother, Raphael, had contacted uh, the Sarasota County Police Department to report his sister uh, possibly missing because she had not come home from a planned meeting that she had with her ex-fiance the evening before. I think it was within an hour after he placed the phone call the Sarasota Police Department, construction workers found the body floating in a retention pond in a commercial industrial area under construction.
0: The body found floating was indeed Ingrid Lugo.
2: Ingrid had a tattoo on her upper back, I believe, or neck, and that's how she was identified through information given by her brother. Most of the time in homicides similar to this, especially if there's a domestic relationship going on, the uh, domestic partner is usually the key suspect, unless something else comes up that points to a different direction. And it was important at this point, since Brian Curry was the last person known to have been with or seen Ingrid Lubell, that we try to interview him and get as many details as possible. And it's been proven time and time again, the first 48 hours are most critical in quickly solving a murder case.
0: By that afternoon, Brian Curry was on the top of the suspect list. Detectives made contact with Brian at his mother's home in Manatee County around 4.30 p.m.
2: We arrived at Brian Curry's house. His sister is there and Brian's there. Brian makes a spontaneous statement of, I don't know why you're talking to me. She hasn't been missing 24 hours yet.
1: Brian's comments were more than suspicious. It seems he was counting on having at least 24 hours before police would even be looking for Ingrid. But again, the police sadly knew where Ingrid was. At this point, Brian was not aware that the police had already discovered Ingrid's body.
2: There had not been anything released to the news media yet as far as the identity or the discovery of a body. So time was kind of on our side as far as uh, trying to get an interview conducted with Brian uh, to get a better storyline and see what statements he might make. So I asked Brian, I said, you know, he were with her last night and he said yes and I said well how did you get home and he said well she dropped me off on the side of a road I don't know where it was he said i had been smoking crack I really don't remember much of it at that point I asked him if he would come to the Manatee County Sheriff's Office so we could do a recorded interview with him and get as many details as possible I presented it to him as if we were working a missing person's case and needed his cooperation, find out about Ingrid's habits, where she might have gone. was she upset after they met, and that's why he agreed to come to the sheriff's office. He had driven to the sheriff's office by a sister, and once they arrive, I sit down to talk to Brian and he tells me that his sister. Is going to hire him and an attorney, he feels it best that he not talk to us. At that point in time, I read him his Miranda rights. He signs off on the forum saying that he wants an attorney and will not answer any questions. So at that point, any attempts to interview him are over.
1: Meanwhile, the search was on for Ingrid's vehicle.
2: From talking to Raphael, we knew that Ingrid Lugo drove a gold four door Chevy Malibu and we had the license plate number for it. License plate number was entered into Florida National Crime Information Database as a possible stolen vehicle connected to a homicide. We then decided to, since we knew where Brian Curry stayed at with his mother, we decided to start checking those areas in Manatee County for her vehicle, checking parking lots, subdivisions, uh, you know, looking for a possible abandoned car. Pretty quickly, the auto theft detective that I was on call with located Ingrid Lugo's car just east of I seventy five in the parking lot of Suncoast Schools Federal Credit Union. And the distance between where her car was located and where Brian hurried, stayed at with his mother was only 2.1 miles. So another piece was quickly coming together.
0: Detective Waldron explains the vehicle's condition.
2: Using my flashlight to look into the vehicle, there appeared to be a um, dark red substance in the center console of the vehicle. There were women's shoes in the floorboard of the driver's front seat.
0: One would think they would have immediately impounded the car for evidence, but investigators had a different idea.
2: We decided that we would back off from the car and do surveillance, thinking that since we made an attempt to talk to Brian Curry, maybe we spooked him enough that he would return to the vehicle and try to dispose of it well you always hear in reality and and in films suspects returning to the scene of the crime and being that we had attempted to talk to brian i was pretty sure that he was nervous and worried about a lot of things especially with the vehicle being so close to where he stayed at with his mother it was worth the time and effort to conduct surveillance on the vehicle to see if, in fact, Brian would return and take the vehicle and try to dispose of it, either jumping into a retention pond or in this area, the preferred method is to take it way out in the eastern part of the county, which is very rural, and set a vehicle on fire. So we did surveillance on the vehicle for at least Five, six hours, there was uh, a cold front coming in through that night with a little bit of rain. We had about five minutes of heavy rain around 2 or 15 in the morning. And at that point, we decided to go ahead and tow the vehicle and put it in the sheriff's office and found the process.
0: The following day, an autopsy was performed and confirmed Ingrid's cause of death. Detective Waldron explains what they believe happened that night.
2: According to the autopsy, Ingrid Lugo had suffered blunt force trauma to her frontal lobe, which would be her forehead, and had strangulation marks on her neck. The cause of death school homicide and the mechanism of injury was strangulation. They had the results of the autopsy and then crime scene technician Terry DeWitt and I processed the outside of the vehicle for fingerprints and oddly enough, no fingerprints whatsoever on the outside of the car, no fingerprints on the inside of the car. It appeared that the car had been wiped down inside and out on all the surfaces that we might have been able to get fingerprints from. and. We did observe what appeared to be blood that had pooled in the cup holders of the Center console. what appeared to be blood on the driver's seat belt, and also blood on the back of the driver's seat. There was a pair of women's shoes, heels, one of them was wedged underneath the gas pedal, and the other one was next to it. There was a bunch of gravel and sand that was in the driver's floorboard, and that was consistent with the construction materials and undeveloped land around the uh, construction site where her body was located in the retention pond. And there was no you know, no gravel or anything on the passenger floorboard, nor in the back. Uh, And at this point, it was presumed that after Ingrid was killed, her body was placed in the back seat of her vehicle, most likely behind the driver's seat, which is what caused the transfer of blood on the back of the driver's seat. And then she was driven to another location and then her body placed in the retention pot. Based on what I learned from the autopsy and what I observed in the car, it was my opinion that there was enough time, but not too much time, for Brian to meet with Ingrid at Burlington Coat Factory, go to this industrial office complex, which was secluded, get into their discussion, argument, It appeared most likely then that that's the location where Ingrid was strangled and murdered. This was based on same type of rock, uh, tiny rocks and dirt that were found on the the driver's uh, floorboard and her shoes as what was in that area. And then most likely her body was put in the back seat of her vehicle. Driven to the retention pond, dragged out of the car, put in the retention pond, and then her vehicle was abandoned a little bit further north in the uh, bank parking lot.
1: How do you think the shoes got in the front floorboard?
2: Due to the blood in the center council area, it would appear that she was strangled, and there was also indication that she had been physically battered due to the postmortem bruising on her face. Blood most likely came from an injury to her nose, causing her nose to bleed. My my theory, based on everything, was that the two of them, Ingrid had been in the driver's seat, Brian had been in the passenger seat, most likely had um, grabbed the back of her head and neck, smashed it into the steering wheel causing the bloody nose, and that the seat belt, the driver's seat belt, was used as run hole, And then at that point, Brian would have gotten out of the car, removed her from the driver's seat, leaving behind the shoes and putting her in the back seat behind the driver's seat. And Brian got back in the vehicle to drive, probably picked up dirt and gravel from that area of the parking lot and later at the um, crime scene where the retention pond was, never moved the shoes, probably stepped on the shoes with his feet, and then also while using the brake and gas pedal, had smashed the shoes down and embedded the uh, dirt and gravel on the shoes.
0: The following week, Ingrid's purse, jewelry, and her cell phone were found in the bushes of an industrial complex off of Cattleman Road in Sarasota nearly one mile north from the Burlington Coat Factory where she worked.
2: So for about the next week, didn't really have anything further to go on. The evidence that was obtained from the car had been sent to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement Frame Laboratory for processing. And then I was notified that a woman's purse and identification had been found. They quickly made a condition connection between the disappearance and murder of Ingrid Lugo based on her identification being found. So they contacted Sarasota County Sheriff's Office and one of our crime scene technicians drove down there and met with the deputy and recovered the purse and uh, Ingrid Lugo's identification, some other belongings.
0: And each location related to the crime could be traced back to Brian
2: Curry the circumstances of the two of them being together shortly after she got off of work, that in combination with the location of the vehicle in close proximity to Brian's mother's and sister's house, where they lived at within two miles. I had also found out during this time that Brian Curry had worked for a, a company driving a vehicle cleaning parking lot and learned Brian's route parking lot that where Ingrid Lugo's purse was found and also the area where her body was found were all areas assigned to uh, Brian Curry to clean with his parking lot suite. It was a good case at that point, but not necessarily a winnable case. And to avoid any mistrials or missteps in evidence or anything, the decision was made not to charge Brian Curry until we got additional evidence.
1: There was no smoking gun for investigators to move in for an arrest. However, Brian was giving the police other reasons to arrest him. This turned out to be just what investigators needed.
2: We arrested him on a felony warrant for forging his mother's signature on checks and cashing them. In conjunction with that, I executed a search warrant on Brian Curry to obtain hair follicles, saliva, so that we could use it compared to the trace evidence that we obtained from Ingrid Lugo's vehicle.
1: Although Brian wasn't talking to investigators about Ingrid, he had no problem discussing her with his cellmate while in the Manatee County Jail awaiting his trial for the forged checks.
2: I did interview this inmate that provided information that Brian Curry had related to him. And it wasn't really a whole lot, but it was things like Brian was asking this inmate if the Philippines had an extradition policy with the United States. He would start getting depressed, talking about how much he loved Ingrid Lugo, and then he would deny doing anything to harm her. But he kept talking about being worried with eventually being charged with her murder. It wasn't enough to incriminate, but it, was, it, it just went along and solidified the circumstantial evidence that they had.
1: What he told his cellmate in Manatee County jail may not have been enough for an arrest, but Brian got sentenced to serve time in a Florida state prison on those forgery charges. By then, the Florida cold case playing cards had been implemented in the prison system, and investigators were about to be dealt a winning hand.
2: Brian Curry was eventually sentenced for the forgery and committed to one of the Florida state prisons. That particular prison did have the full case playing cards that Special Agent Tommy Ray had created. And Brian, once again, started talking to his uh, cellmate and they would play cards and everything. So his cellmate knew. Briefly about Ingrid Lugo, her disappearance and murder, and Brian made some incriminating statements to his two cellmates who eventually came forward. That, with all the circumstantial evidence that we had, was enough to eventually charge Brian Curry with the murder of Ingrid Lugo.
0: It's absurd that people commit horrible and illegal acts and then feel a need to tell other criminals about them. But as the cards have proven, they do. While serving his sentence in a Florida state prison on the forgery charges, Curry made incriminating statements to several of his fellow inmates. Luckily, the cold case playing cards had been issued to the inmates at the state prison and county jails in Florida. After seeing the cold case playing cards, three inmates linked the photo of Ingrid Lugo and the details of her homicide printed on the back of one of the playing cards to the statements made by Brian Curry, linking him to Ingrid Lugo's murder.
1: Creator of the cold case playing cards, Tommy Ray, explains why these cards work, despite the old saying, snitches get
2: stitches. In the inmate on the Ingrid Lugo case, two things you don't do. You don't hurt kids or women. And if we find about it in prison, we'll take care of them ourselves most of the time. You got to think everybody in prison is not bad. Some of them made some mistakes, some made some bad mistakes, but they still, you know, have a conscience and they still, for the most part, you know, uh, depends on what they're in there for. You know, they want to do the right thing, especially when it comes to, to murder.
0: In March 2008, Brian Curry was tried for murder and found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. But that's not where the story ends. Brian Curry had his conviction overturned due to a technicality caused by his own defense attorney. He was granted a second
2: trial. There was some type of misconduct as far as instructions that Brian Curry's attorney gave him. But he did get, was granted a second trial, went through everything again identical to the first trial. And he was finally convicted again four years later.
0: Once again, justice was served, and he was found guilty a second time. We reached out to Brian Curry to see if he would like to talk with us for this episode. He agreed, but he had one condition, and we're quoting from his response. This is Brian Curry responding back to your email. Yes,
1: I will talk to you if you want an interview, but on one condition, that you report the truth. Don't try to twist words around like the state did. Do your homework on the case. I'm still fighting for freedom and the truth in the federal court. The inmate that testified in both trials recanted his testimony and admitted that the Manatee County Sheriff's Department coached him in what to say. There is no physical evidence linking me to the crime. The real murderer is still out there.
0: We replied back saying we would record a statement of whatever he would like to say on this matter and air it as such. Yet at the time of this air date, we did not hear back from him.
1: We believe, just as two separate jurors have decided in a court of law that the investigators have their right man, and justice has finally been served for Ingrid Lugo. We tried contacting Rafael for this story and to tell us more about his sister. However, we were unable to locate him, and Detective Bill Waldron believes that Rafael and his family moved back to Venezuela after Brian Curry's second trial. The beautiful state of Florida held too many horrible memories for him and his family
2: from the very beginning, been in contact with uh, Raphael Lugo a lot and had met with Ingrid Lugo's parents at our offices at the sheriff's office. They didn't speak very much English, came from Venezuela, so Raphael had to translate everything, but basically the father pleaded with me for justice in his daughter's murder. There were times where they there was disappointment. Raphael was disappointed that we hadn't been able to arrest and charge Brian Curry with his sister's murder. But I promised them the very first time I met with Ingrid's mother and father and her brother that I would bring Brian Curry to justice. And some people say you should never make that promise because it may not come true. But I truly felt that through my diligence and determination, that one day I was going to bring Brian Curry to justice, and that's why this this case and the in the two trials were so impactful on me, because I was very passionate about this. I loved my job. You know, when someone's murdered, there's nobody else there to speak to them. You know, there's no one else to speak to the suspect and bring that suspect to justice, and to give the family some closure the homicide detective and the crime scene technicians and people that deal with evidence and everyone else that all work together for that victim and speak for that victim.
0: Thank you for joining us on this special episode of Dealing Justice. We were super excited to bring this solved case to you guys and show you how the cold case playing cards work we've been able to see firsthand and talk to Tommy Ray. We knew how many solved cases have come out of this and the impact that it's had. So we were just grateful and excited to be able to share that with you guys.
1: Because so many people haven't heard of the cold case playing cards before and also were wondering, like, how do they work? How do they actually work? And why are
0: they just in the prisons? That kind of thing. Well, and as you see here, this was the first one we wanted to share with you guys because it's exactly the way it was intended usually inmates will talk they will often tell people about their crime sometime in depth a lot of times inmates will say they don't know whether to believe somebody a lot of times they will also add details that make them look tougher or make their crime look worse than it is but sometimes inmates tell the truth and they tell others exactly what happened and so what happens is the cold case playing cards get distributed inmates play the cards And then, boom, they see a picture. And in this case, that's exactly what happened.
1: Exactly. And even Detective Waldron said, you know, they had so much circumstantial. I mean, they knew they had their guy. But again, it's different to know and have evidence and circumstantial evidence enough to bring it to a court of law and have a trial. So they really didn't have that smoking gun in the DA's office. You know, felt like it wasn't. So this really, truly was a case that unless they had somebody that they got from those cards, they weren't bringing it to trial. I mean, they they had all that information up until these people started speaking forward when Brian started talking.
0: And we just want to make sure that you guys know that these inmates reach out to Crime Stoppers and Crime Stoppers takes every tip and everything that they get in. They take it serious and um, they push it forward to the proper authorities. But a lot of times people think that these inmates only do this for money, but I can tell you that we have been told on several occasions, the reward is often not the focus of why the inmates tell. Sometimes it's definitely helpful, but there are times, and again, we'll share these stories with you guys on down the line. There's times that they come forward and share what they know, just really based on wanting to get it off their chest and help. Or like Tommy Ray said, especially when it comes to women and children,
1: or murder cases, it's like a different type of situation depending on the type of victim and
0: the type of crime that was done. Like we had spoken in the beginning, there isn't any certain system that is tracking these cards and cases that are solved off of them. However, a lot of times the police department will do that, and so that's how we know about this information. Right, to do the expense and everything to get them out there. But
1: remember too, if they're calling Crime Stoppers or even from the cards, they are anonymous. So. Even if they told the person on Crime Stoppers, I saw this in the card, a lot of that stuff is anonymous. And that's why people also feel like they can give leads that even if they are in prison and don't necessarily want to tell,
0: they can tell and not be told who they are. Absolutely. That is the whole point of this. And most of the time, families are less interested about the ancillary characters and often what we see, which is shocking, um, there comes a time when they're less interested in who did it and just the information on where they are at so they can put them to rest.
1: Yeah, and I think what's important, too, is some of these cards, and I think Tommy even talks about it, is that some of them do come forward, too, to lessen their sentence. Some of them do come forward and give information and can make deals, or they can choose to remain anonymous. It's really up to them.
0: Right, and I think either way is perfectly a okay because, again, the information getting out there and helping a family is what needs to be done But we just want to say, too, that the impact of these cards just continues to be shocking and the ripple effect that it's had. It's international now. There are several countries that are doing this. There are hundreds of cases that have been solved, hundreds of hundreds of tips that have come in. So we are so happy to be here and telling you guys about these stories. Although we are going to go back to our unsolved cases on the next episode, we're going to throw some of these in there. And just like we said in the beginning, just to shake things up and give you guys um, some examples of soft cases. I also want to bring out, I think we've
1: mentioned Massachusetts just came out with their deck in February. And actually, Kansas has announced that their first deck is coming out in late spring or early summer of this year. That's so awesome. So there's different places. People are getting involved. And also for those that have asked, if a lot of times if you go on your state's the state law enforcement, the state police department, you can check and see if your
0: state has them as well. And if not, even better, send an email, you know, asking them about this. And if you guys know about your state or a country that's doing this, if you know about a case that we should cover that's on the cards that you would like to see a spotlight, please let us know, shoot us an email or reach out to us on social media. We would love to hear from you guys. And we want to thank Liz Morgan PR for being absolutely amazing and sponsoring us. Liz Morgan PR is a boutique public relations firm specializing in media relations, event planning, and communication strategy. Founder, president, and friend, Liz Morgan is a creative, award-winning public relations professional with one goal in mind, getting her clients buzz. Like us on Facebook at Cold Case Playing Cards for all the latest information on this case and
1: other cards we'll be featuring on future episodes. Feeling Justice is written, produced, and hosted by Jennifer Dubisak and myself, Lori Jennings. Our sound design is by John Schaub. Our executive consultant is the Cold Case Playing Cards creator, retired FDLE special agent Tommy Ray. If you want to help us spread the word about these victims' stories, please subscribe and leave us a positive review on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends to Subscribe.